This episode is sponsored by Lens Protocol. Lens lets you own your own social media presence, easily monetize your content, and carry your social graph with you wherever you go. That means you, the creator, can focus on creating without ever having to worry about losing access to your account or having to build a new following again. Lens also lets you engage more closely with your fans, directly monetize your work, and if you're a dev, easily spin up a new app with Lens's full suite of developer tools. Go to lens.xyz today to claim the last social media handle you'll ever need. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and today we're getting technical with HTML Tina, product manager and head of governance at Eigenlayer. Everyone has been talking about Eigenlayer lately, but I'm willing to wager that very few people outside of the highly technical circles within crypto Twitter really understand what Eigenlayer is, myself included. What I learned from my conversation with Tina is that there are a lot of moving pieces we need to understand in order to understand what Eigenlayer enables, including staking, restaking, liquid staking tokens or LSTs, rehypothecation, oracles, slashing, and a lot more. The good news is that Tina does a great job of explaining these concepts in an easy to understand way, but I would highly encourage any of you listening to reach out to Tina directly on Twitter at HTML underscore Tina or join the Rehash Discord server if you have any follow-up questions or would just like to chat more on these topics. I truly learned so much from speaking with Tina, and I can't wait for you all to hear my conversation. Tina was nominated by me, Diana Chen, and voted onto the podcast by Richie Bonilla, David Phelps, Jimmy Chain, Tim Black, Web 3 Anae Sim, and Justin Conley. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Tina. Hey, Tina. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining me after hours. I know it's nighttime for you already, so I appreciate you taking the time. And I'm really excited to talk to you about some more technical things. Um, Rehash, we don't often talk about very technical concepts. I think we've had like one technical episode per season last season. We had Jimmy Chain on to talk to us about some more technical concepts. And that's kind of what this episode is going to be for this season. So I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. I might ask some dumb questions. My knowledge of these things is super limited. So you'll have to be patient with me as we go through some of these really challenging and complex topics. But I'm really excited to get into it with you. And so let's just go ahead and dive right on in. I'm so excited. And thank you for giving me a chance to chat because you're one of the best interviewers in the space. So I'm super excited. Oh my gosh. Thank you for saying that. So the first thing I want to start with is restaking. And I guess if we're talking about restaking, we should first start by talking about staking, right? So I think our listeners probably have some vague idea of what staking is. Um, I think in short, and tell me if I'm if I do a good job of this or if I totally butcher it. But I, in short, I think What staking is, it it just means basically locking up a token like Ethereum, for example, as collateral in exchange for some reward. And the reason that you might want to lock up your your token, like your Ethereum, for example, is that you can help to make the network more secure. You can increase your chances of becoming a validator, which is somebody who proposes new blocks on on chain and attests to the validity of other blocks that an okay explanation at a basic level of what staking is? Yeah, that that is more than okay. That is on on the nose. My go-to for explaining to people is giving them like two reference points. 
So oftentimes I find it's really hard to understand crypto terms and concepts in the context of solely just Web3 products. So I often point them to rehypothecation and the act of restaking and staking was pulled from the traditional finance world for rehypothecation. So that's a really good reference point for them to look into. And then the act of staking, that's similar to if you were to give a friend in the playground a toy and you were to state to them like, hey, if you hold this toy for me for approximately five days, not only will you get more toys, but we'll be able to build like the community playground a lot stronger. So that's how I've been kind of explaining it to my friends outside of crypto, because I find when you state like rewards, validator schemes, that's really easy to get confused in what those terms mean. And I think that the community strength and consensus and then yield and rewards for the individuals is a really way, clear way to communicate that. I love that playground analogy. I, I think it's right on the nose. And I've, I've never heard an analogy like that before. So kudos to you for coming up with that. And then just because you mentioned rehypothecation and to make sure we're on the same page, rehypothecation is basically when a financial institution uses assets or collateral that have been pledged to them to secure its own borrowing or trading. So essentially like using assets that have already been pledged as collateral to obtain additional financing. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's the, I, you don't even need me here. You're like killing it. And that's exactly what restaking is. It's giving people the ability to use already staked assets and uh, reallocate them to another staking provider. And what this does is it both uses Ethereum as security layer and then also allows them to utilize these assets in lending and a lot of other DeFi primitives within the space. Okay, so going back to staking. So I, I'm staking uh, some ETH, for example, and then some time passes and then I decide to unstake that. At that point, what sort of decision-making process am I going through in my head to decide whether I want to keep that Ethereum unstaked or if I want to restake that? Yeah, so I think there's multiple different factors that I think of, particularly as someone that has been on the staking side and then also on the protocol builder side. And the first I would think is like, what is the on-ramp fees. So like, what is the potential fees that you had to pay when you were initially depositing and going into your maintenance and participation of staking within the protocol? And then what is the withdrawal fees? Is there potentially like an epoch period that you can withdraw in? Does it have to do a direct withdrawal? So what an epoch period is, is some of the staking programs have a specific period that you can withdraw in. And this is by the distribution of awards. And if it's within that period, that means that sometimes it, based on your jurisdiction, you may have to pay capital gains tax on it. There may be other tax jurisdiction factors. So all of those different factors based on the withdrawal limits, the actual TBL limits, and then the deposit fees that you paid, those are all factors that users should be looking at when they're going into staking and how they could best optimize for what's best for them. Gotcha. Then we had a question from the community from George P. Beal on Twitter. He wanted to know what risks does restaking create and how does Eigenlayer plan on managing those risks? Yeah, so I think one of the risks 
of restaking. It has already been established in the Vitalik article is primarily using Ethereum as a security layer, but I don't think that's and Shriam, our founder and the leader of the protocol, he's primarily addressed these issues. And I think a lot of the concern comes from the misinterpretation of the fact that it would be overloading Ethereum when the actual architectural design of Eigenlayer doesn't in fact withhold those risks. So I do understand a lot of the concern, but I think it mainly stems from the fact that this work is a lot of research done by academic researchers that have been researching peer-to-peer networks, data availability, and a lot of data infrastructure for years. And it's still in a place that it's in design specification, early prototypes, or testnet stages. And it's really easy to, to protect different risks before it's launched to market. But I'm super excited to see how it actually goes past the auditing stage and how users react to it as well, too. I did notice when I was kind of trying to do my homework for this episode, how much research is a part of what you guys do at Eigenlayer. And I I guess that makes a lot of sense because you're dealing with a lot of new things that you're working on, a lot of things that potentially have risk. And so you want to make sure that you're doing that research and doing your due diligence before building in whatever direction you think is right to build in. And speaking of Eigenlayer, I guess this would be a good time for you to tell people what is Eigenlayer. I think Eigenlayer is something that at least everybody on crypto Twitter has heard of, I would venture to say, but probably few really know what it is or could tell you much about it. So I'll let you explain what Eigenlayer is. Yeah, so Eigenlayer or Eigenlabs, call them, is the primarily the R&D team that is contributing to both the Eigenlayer protocol and the Eigenlayer protocol is the restaking services that you see live on mainnet right now. And then the data availability product that the Eigenlabs has been working on. And then we also have a stage three product that's coming soon that was outlined in our blog post. And that's more catered towards AVSs, AVSs being actively validated services. And primarily, these three products are catered towards the validator, node operator, and roll-up or infrastructure experience as a whole. And it's really trying to tackle the middleware problem of helping builders within the space provide the most optimal experience and then also improving the developer experience for infrastructure as a whole. Okay, so going back to restaking real quick, one thing that is at the core of staking is that you have this trade-off that for staking your assets that are then locked up, you in exchange receive some sort of reward. And with LSTs, which are liquid staking tokens, if my understanding is correct, you're actually able to receive rewards and have liquidity of your staked assets with LSTs. Yes. So why restaking is so incredible is because you still get the benefits of utilizing your staked assets in other DeFi protocols. So if I had a staked asset in, let's say, Lido or Rocket Pool right now, I could still be involved in a collateral position in another DeFi protocol with these same staked assets. And what this does is it allows both like constant liquidity in DeFi markets as a whole, but then also allows lending markets to take advantage of interest rates. Because if assets are locked up in staking, then that's liquidity that's being locked up and fragmented from, let's say, DeFi protocols that have 
hedging positions or AMMs that are primarily presenting different options or derivatives for users within the market. So it allows like more free autonomy for liquidity within the market. And then it also allows for interest rates and market liquidity to be more free within DeFi markets as a whole. And this is really cool because it'll mean that institutional markets will potentially be interested because when market liquidity has more flow of funds and like it's more freely promoting economic activity, this means that oftentimes institutional markets that find like a certain position or a certain staking provider, there's volatility or risk exposure assessed with it. They won't have the same level of risk exposure if they're staked assets, but then they can use those same staked assets in a lending position or another DeFi primitive because then their risk exposure is diversified across these different assets and then across these many different positions. So it alleviates a lot of the risk that goes into going into specific DeFi derivatives or options or products within the market and then allows them to enter more positions. So that's from a financial perspective. From more of a technical perspective, is there also an advantage there to using LSTs? Yeah, so the technical advantage of LSTs more so is like, the instant liquidity that it provides for validators and also the ability to participate in governance. So like when you stake your assets or delegate, oftentimes that means that you don't have the chance to participate in non-chain governance. So having the ability to do so that enables more action and on-chain engagement because users will have the ability to do both. How important would you say decentralization and self-custody is in liquid staking services? So, so, so important. I think one thing that I really want to see the space as a whole or crypto really solve, and let's see if we beat traditional finance markets to it, is the self-custodian problem. Because I think that's going to be a real problem that both KYC and non-KYC markets face. And having a custodian solution for staking providing and also liquidity mining in the future that can empower governance is really important to maintaining engagement and a lot of participation in both governance systems and markets as a whole. So I know you spend a lot of your time working on governance at Eigenlayer, and we've started to talk about this already. I'm curious, how do you perceive the role of forking and rehypothecation in governance models? Yeah, so I I think this is like one of the one of the biggest questions in the space because Nouns like most recently released a product or research article on the potential roadmap on forking and its implications on their governance system. And one thing I think personally is that a lot of the ideas that are coming out about forking, we need to have more discussions about the implications on consensus and then how it's going to drive liquidity fragmentation. Because oftentimes when you are having these early stage concepts of DAO forking, what this does is segment consensus and decision making and then causes gridlock, one. And then the second one is it fragments liquidity for the DAO or contributors across that market. So it seems like a really good solution or idea to go into. But one thing is like, what are the implications on the actual contributors that are DAO contributors, the validators, the node operators, and then the retail consumer users on the application side? And then how is this going to affect all of the network users as a whole? Because I think the effects and kind of the civil resistance effects as well, too, are something that we need to discuss more. From sort of your, your research and just your experience managing governance um, at Eigenlayer, have you seen any mechanisms that you think can help maintain 
decentralization while also enforcing community cohesion? Yeah, so one of my favorite metrics of kind of achieving community cohesion and then also maintaining resistance against Sybil is probably epoch periods or time horizons. So one thing that was an incredible piece of architecture that was kind of coined, it was both used in the council voting vaults when I was at Element. And then also it's used within this noun style forking infrastructure. It's used for the proof of staking system with the epoch periods. But I think time-based horizons is like a very good utility or way to prevent civil because it often sets time locks to certain actions and prevents malicious actors from trying to take over a protocol, pursue a malicious action. Think like outside of epoch periods and specific time locks, a lot of the space needs to innovate more because the only proof of personhoods that we've seen in the space past WorldCoin has really been limited to civic wallet verification. And I think that there's a lot more that we could do to verify personhood, to prevent like malicious actors from, let's say, forking a specific DAO and then trying to make a civil attack in that way. And I think there's a lot of cool innovation that could be done in that that area. If you're helping set up a a new DAO from scratch, what would be the best practices for civil resistance that you would put in place as you're just getting started? Yeah, so I think having permissioned groups and then also setting specific time horizons to certain actions, having clear defined parameters for on-chain actions and off-chain actions, having specific policies that outlines specific standards and improvement standards and contribution standards. That way you're specifically setting parameters of what the protocol accepts, what the protocol does not accept, and then promoting engagement in a way that you slowly iterate and allow for more feedback and participation. Because I think one thing I see specifically both for networks and like governance as a whole is oftentimes these protocols decentralize too quick and they don't do it in a progressive way that can allow for iterative feedback from the community. So in this way, you allow kind of for both. How do you think LSTs are going to affect decentralization for DeFi protocols? Yeah, so on a protocol revenue stand, when you utilized stake assets and then restaked assets, those stake assets are contributing protocol revenue to that original protocol and then to, let's say, Eigenlayer protocol or the other protocol that is enacting this action of restaking, that means that there's going to be at least like three protocol revenue streams from this. One thing I think should be discussed in like restaking and LSTs as a whole is as LSTs are developed more and then DeFi protocols build on top of these existing LSTs, what are the potential protocol revenue implications for them? And then also, how is that going to affect the DeFi protocols revenue streams? Because that means that that position is potentially going to be split in like four to five shares. So how can we still incentivize DeFi DAP developers to build within the space and sustain like a sustainable like protocol revenue stream for both their developers and the protocol that they're building? Because it is at the end of the day, the DAPs that are building on top of the infrastructure layer that are going to get mainstream adoption. Video powers the internet. But building with the most engaging form of media shouldn't be complicated or expensive. LivePeer's suite of developer tools powered by the LivePeer network make it easy to build performance video experiences affordably, at scale, and with no vendor lock-in. Designed to give developers the freedom to innovate, 
creators autonomy from platforms, and viewers a choice in their experience. Visit livepeer.org to get started today. Well, we have a couple of questions from the community, a couple more questions. The first is from Mihai673 on Twitter said, can you restake in a council voting vault? So technically, if you wanted to restake in a council voting vault, that could be possible. The current council voting vault structure is that it starts off with a user submitting their vote in a locking vault, and then this vault is then distributed to a voting vault. And if someone then took these assets or the disposition from this voting vault and then had the ability to restake it, that would be super cool because then they can maintain the ability to be a participant of the Dell governance system and then also utilize it for potentially a collateralized lending position, which would be super cool. And then another question we had from Zero X Jim on Twitter, what oracles does Eigenlayer use for slashing? I'm not going to lie, don't even understand what this question means, but I assume you do. So you might have to explain what the question means to us first and then answer it. Yeah, of course. So this is actually my favorite question because I this was probably the question that I like nerded most about because oracles in itself, there is an incredible article written by Dana Litzer from Nason. And this article primarily pointed out the flaws in oracles and also in auditing systems and why they're the two biggest points of the DeFi markets. That are affecting builders. And these oracles, we've seen like past to, to DeFi summer, oftentimes there's fixed oracles to a DeFi protocol. And what that means is that the oracle is presenting a subjective pricing information to users for that specific application use case. What Eigenlayer could potentially do is they could potentially use intersubjective slashing. So the difference from intersubjective and subjective is that Intersubjective oftentimes is based on a certain set of defined parameters. Subjective is based on a set of parameters that might be variable based on the actors that have submitted them or are less infinite or defined. The ability to slash, that's an act of removing or penalizing a malicious actor for a malicious event. So what Jim is referencing in this question is what oracles does Eigenlayer use for slashing? He's specifically referencing that article from Dana Litzer that kind of points to the flaws in oracles and fixed oracles and why Eigenlayer's intersubjective slashing could actually innovate in this space for DeFi as a whole. Gotcha. I think I followed maybe like 60% of that. Yeah. And what, what I'd say to anyone that's listening, because oracles are incredibly cool infrastructure, What they do, maybe my favorite use case is like a pricing oracle, is pricing oracle could pull information, let's say like a chain link pricing oracle, it could pull information about a DeFi position or token or price in real time. And it's pulling that information on that position for users to then display on an application front end. And why these pricing oracles are really important is that having them fixed to a specific use case or a fixed priced oracle, that oftentimes doesn't give users enough context or can provide information that may not be accurate. So the Eigenlayer's case of intersubjectivity, that's really cool innovation on this front because it wouldn't be fixed in that context. But does that help at all or like it? Yeah, no, I can see how 
So eigenlayers oracles that are intersubjective, it would provide more up-to-date and accurate information. Yes. Than a fixed oracle. Would. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. That makes more sense. Thanks for explaining that. So every episode we wrap up with an explain your tweet segment. This is where I pull any spicy tweets you have or just any ambiguous tweets and give you a chance to explain them. You don't have a lot of spicy tweets, especially recently. I think you've just been retweeting a bunch of stuff and you're definitely not one of those like unhinged tweeters that just tweet anything and everything that pops up. And I know like that's something you've said too, is like you don't put out a lot of spicy tweets and you have your own reasons for that. Do you want to share like your thinking behind that? Yeah. So my general take is that oftentimes like social media can remove the nuance of like a lot of these discussions. And I don't think it's like a very appropriate place to voice opinions on products, on things that might not be zero sum. And a lot of the takes that I see too, like building, let's say a front or comments on another builder or another team or another product feature update, it oftentimes removes like the nuance of the fact that that team or those developers or the people that are building on that, they might have not ha had a hand in, let's say, the product direction, or there might have been another third party influence in the decisions they had to make, or it was more so a legal and compliance issue. And I've been on the other side of like seeing those comments. And I think like, yes, it's fun to be unhinged sometimes. I totally get it. But I more so empathize with the other builders in this space because it's really hard to ship something and it's really hard to build a product that a lot of people can use. And I find there's more validity in doing that and supporting other people and what they put out than like sending off like a 140 word tweet about like a product that I probably spent like 20 seconds on. Totally. That's beautiful and very well said. I did find a few tweets that I just thought were just really well-written tweets. So I'm going to read those out. The first is, you tweeted this back on October 3rd, 2022. You said, managing people is just being a mix of a fire extinguisher and a school teacher. That kind of made me laugh because it's so true. And I also feel like you were maybe going through something when you tweeted that. <laughs> I definitely feel like um, that's that's pretty accurate. And like the one thing is like when you're a school teacher, you have to maintain a level of comedy and also like stoicness to what's going on. And like you have to be like this sort of resilience for your team members. And if you can't maintain that resilience, then they get stressed as well, too. And like that's so similar to school teachers because like you never saw your school teacher stress like during fire drills when there was like, let's say, a potential bad actor and you're in a lockdown like they were like so cool as a cucumber so even though they were probably like dying inside so it's like such a good analogy that I like pulled from because I was like okay my grade five teacher like she never broke a sweat and I have to maintain that level of like, stoicism in every combo I have another tweet too that I really liked this one was from November 27th 2022 you said such a small thing but personal red flag when VCs or founders don't have personal relationships or friendships that have lasted five to ten plus years shows that they don't understand interpersonal relationships and tending to relationships with water and care over the years I wanted to pull that because I've, I've never really thought about it that way but I think it's such a good take I honestly loved that tweet and it didn't come from like a place of malice it was more so like I was reflecting on my relationships and like that there's a lot of relationships that you will have that like 
they will be just people you will meet like every so months, but tending to them and like checking in on them and also making sure that those are relationships that you like contribute to. And also you really like push each other and give them like the love and care that you can as both a friend, a colleague, whatever capacity you are in. But like one thing, both when I was interviewing early in my career and I take as a like a point of reference now is like, has that team been together for many years and like one of the things I really loved or like looked for as both a candidate and someone that was who recently joined Eigenlayer is like and I want to stress to a lot of the young folks that are listening is like really look for a team that has been together for a long time and a team where like a majority of the founding team is like still there because that's such a green flag and it shows that a lot of the team has like experience both building the product together and then building the founding team together and it shows that they really value the people there and also their growth and really just like making an effort to give people time to excel and like grow over time so that's kind of the context to it but like it's my rule of thumb is like water everything both people things around you and also like the facets of knowledge that you'd like to foster is like okay I want to be good at this thing then I constantly have to be working at it and like slowly do it in a way that's sustainable too. That's such good advice. I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about either because that's such like a human component of it or like an intangible component of interviewing for a job that I think a lot of people just don't think about that. And I love that framing. Last thing, I know you said that you don't put out spicy tweets, but I did, I think, find one or two. One of them, you said, this is from March 20th of this year. You said, you can really tell which DeFi protocols are built by people that haven't traded a day in their life. That's a bit spicy, isn't it? Yeah, okay, yeah, it is. <laughs> so I'm guessing there's no chance I get you to reveal any names that you are subtweeting. No, no. I will say that if you're a DeFi developer and you don't have a trading interface that you can use to either see the PNL, like profit and loss, or like really see how you're profiting off your positions, please, please look at how DeFi users potentially use their positions and what they're looking for in how they're hedging, how they're trying to profit off the positions they're entering and exiting and really showcase those aspects because that's what the tweet was alluding to. It's like DeFi applications that don't display that information and then you have to go then and look on chain and calculate yourself. It's like, what? No, no Thanks. one's going to do that. Yeah. That's yeah. terrible, terrible user experience. And then this last one is from May 23rd. So it's pretty recent. You said, I wish someone could make me care about the consumer crypto market again. Why do we not like consumer crypto anymore? No, we do. And this actually, this one makes me really sad because I, I came into the space as a consumer and like, I think the future of the space is the consumer markets. No one's going to be excited about institutions using these applications. And yes, it will be fun from a B2B level, the innovation, but like, it's really the consumer markets that power the next internet boom and what the future of blockchain could be. It's what did it for the 80s and 90s in the internet age that we saw. And it kind of makes me sad because I think there's a lot of capital and intelligent people working on the infrastructure side and the protocol layer. But those innovations, they're not being translated to consumer applications. So what we're seeing is like, all of this mass innovation being done for L2s, for CK research, for restaking, for a lot of the protocol layer research. And that same research isn't being applied to, let's say, 
wallet management, key management. It's not being applied to specific AMM positions and how they could be diversified or how they could be automated in a way that people could manage positions autonomously over like certain set time horizons and like a set risk exposure. All of that innovation that's being done isn't being translated to the consumer because right now there's no incentive for these protocol researchers to do it. And a lot of the application side, it's still the protocol layer research is still obfuscated and it's unclear, it's abstract how those innovations could be applied. And I really, really think that when the two worlds start to work cohesively, a lot of cool innovation could be done for consumer markets because it's the biggest thing that I see is that there's a lack of communication over the protocol research that's being done in the application development. And the application development is the future of consumers. So I really, I really, really hope that both kind of the two segments of builders within the space kind of implore more to learn more outside of their specific use cases and products. And hopefully we can build cooler solutions that are tailored more to the UX of consumer. So I feel you 100%. And those are really good insights. I feel like now we have to bring you back for another follow up episode just on this topic, because we could say so much about it. But I know we've got to wrap up here. So before you go, Tina, just tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you and where people can go to check out Eigenlayer or just learn more or any resources you want to direct people to. My Twitter is HTML underscore Tina. We are hiring for a blockchain security lead and smart contract dev, as well as a load of other positions. You can go to the Eigenlayer Twitter, E-I-G-N layer, and we have it linked directly in the bio. Jeffrey Commons, who's our smart contract lead, an amazing individual that's looked primarily recruiting for this team and uh, our whole executive team, Sid Shriam and Chris and Calvin are incredible. So they would be, and I would be so lucky to have whoever applies. So my DMs are open. If you want to apply, message me and yeah, let's build the future of open innovation, hopefully, hopefully together. Fingers crossed. Let's do it. Thank you so much, Tina, for taking the time. Thank you everybody for tuning in and we'll be back again next week with another episode of Rehab. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Rehash. Rehash is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Diana Chen, and sponsored by Lens, Livepeer, Quest, and Lore. Rehash is also supported by our community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes part of the Rehash community and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. To learn more about how to become a guest on the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast. And to learn more about sponsoring the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash sponsor. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at RehashWeb3 or on Lens at Rehash.Lens. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.